Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another episode of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. You know, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that we have amazing guests on and occasionally I get in conversations that I can't believe I'm having with some of the most incredible artists of our times. And lately I've been going back through the archives and replaying some of my favorites on this podcast. And as you also may know, we are figuring out our next phase of Off Camera. We're trying to find a new broadcast partner and we're sort of retooling the show. So while we do all of that, I thought it was an excellent opportunity to bring you some of my favorite shows. We sort of have a wall in the office with a list of everybody's favorite shows, favorite quotes, favorite moments from the show. And what I wanted to do is bring you some of my favorites and it lets me kind of go down memory lane at the same time and remember what off camera is all about. So this week I wanted to bring you one of our earlier episodes with Will Ferrell. Now, if you watch the broadcast of this show, you'll know that Will Ferrell got naked at the beginning of it. A fact that I neglected to mention the first time we aired this podcast, but as you're listening, you'll have to picture that I introduce Will Ferrell, and then when I ask him about being naked, he's actually sitting there naked. Uh, it was one of the funniest episodes to shoot, and of course, Will is a totally great sport, and I think it's just as funny to listen to as it is to watch. But as I went back and revisited this episode, I'd forgotten how much he talked about his own upbringing and his own insecurities into this field of comedy and how he almost gave up on himself. And it made me realize that someone that you can look at it and just say, oh, this guy has the world by the tail. He, just like any of us, is going through his own battles with insecurity and wondering how his career is going to go. In other words, nobody has a roadmap. Nobody has it all figured out. And that's why I wanted to present this episode to you this week. I think that this was one of the first times where I really realized what this show could be, which is sort of an examination of the human psyche and the idea that this creative pursuit that we are all involved in doesn't have as much to do with success or with process or with results as it does with discovery. And every time I speak to someone who I really admire and I find out just how much they had to learn about themselves to get to where they are, it is both humbling, but it's also inspiring because it makes me realize that the sky is the limit for any of us. So that's my roundabout way of saying, take another listen to Will Ferrell, who is a perfect example of someone that seems like he's just funny no matter what he does and realize how much work it took to get there. Now, before I play the episode, I just want to say up front that at the end of each episode, we talk all about off camera and the different ways that we broadcast the show. And I wanted to do all of that at the beginning because quite frankly, when you get to the end of the story, you may just turn this podcast off and you may not have the opportunity to hear all of the things that we talk about at the end of the show. So the most important thing is this, as we work behind the scenes on off camera, I wanted to tell you the ways that you can dive deeper into the show and also support us during this time. So if you haven't been to offcamera.com, now's a great time to check it out. We have over 218 episodes archived and you can watch every one of them in glorious high definition black and white on any device as many times as you like by getting our television subscription package. And if you haven't seen off camera, this is a great opportunity to sort of see what you've been hearing. And obviously the Will Ferrell episode is a great example of that. But also when you get the television subscription package, it really supports our show and keeps us going. So please take a minute, go to offcamera.com and check it out. Also, if you love what we're doing, take a minute, go on social media and tell your friends about us. 
We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So don't keep us a secret. Tell the world about Off Camera. Check out offcamera.com and stay up to date with everything we're doing. That's my spiel. And now, here's Will Ferrell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with Will Farrell. Just mention Will Farrell's name or glance at a picture of him, and chances are you're already smiling. But the really funny thing is that it's not necessarily because his best-known characters are so gosh darn lovable. You see, Farrell never bought the conventional movie truism that comedic leads have to be likable, and he went on to prove it, perhaps most pointedly, with the iconic Ron Burgundy. In fact, he doesn't even think comedy has to be particularly funny to be hysterical. While working a number of regular jobs, like valet and bank teller, Farrell did stand-up in small comedy clubs, clinging to his father's surprisingly helpful advice that his ever-making-it would be a long shot. It was just that take-it-or-leave-it approach that allowed him to pursue his unique comedic style free from the angst that might have otherwise crushed it. It might also explain a small sadistic streak that underlies his performances. If you don't like what he's doing, sit back and enjoy it anyway. Or else. In my chat with Will, he describes his stomach-churning, knee-buckling Saturday Night Live audition and the even more daunting experience of joining the legendary show at one of its lowest points. He also shares his writing process, stories behind some of his best-loved impersonations, and his long and sometimes perplexing feature film resume. His success and work in projects as diverse as Elf and Stranger Than Fiction illustrate the rare genius of someone who can make the ridiculously absurd not only believable, but sympathetic. Chalk it up to talent or unquestioning commitment to any role he takes on, but not to hard work. Farrell's a firm believer in not overthinking the work or worrying too much about whether his projects succeed, as long as he's having fun along the way. He may not be cerebral, but trust me, he's brilliant. So pull up a chair and listen in. Will Farrell. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. Great to be here. No, it's a great honor. And, and when you uh, told me you'd actually seen the show, I yes. thought, well, we should get him on. That doesn't happen very often. I'm a fan. Well, I'm, I'm I appreciate a fan. it. And yeah. I've been a fan of yours a long time. And uh, we've worked together a lot. Right. And uh, I was going through some of the old shoots to kind of prepare right, for this. Right. And I think the first time I photographed you, you were on a miniature pony. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you've been naked in a lot of the shoots, too. A couple of the shoots. Yeah. yeah. Which brings up a lot of questions. Right. Um, but what is it? What is it about a grown man naked that's so reliably funny? Um, I don't know if I even have an answer for that. Um, but uh, you know what? I'll start by saying I think it's slightly exaggerated, you know, how many – you'd mentioned you were going back through some of the photos. Yeah, and yeah. A fair amount of times I've been naked. I, see, I think that gets played up a bit. People are always like, why are, you, why are you naked all the time? I'm like, it's not as many times as you would think. That's the best answer I can give because otherwise I don't really – it doesn't come across my mind that often. Right, right. Yeah. No, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Um, do you have moments where you say later, maybe reflecting back, you know, maybe I crossed the line there? Or, or do you always kind of feel like you can't go far enough? 
You know, I, I mean, there's <clears throat> there's definitely uh, there's definitely things I know I've been asked to do that I thought, no, that's that's too much. But I have to honestly say, I don't think it came from the the response of it's too much as it was. I just I just didn't think it was funny. Right. And the times that maybe I did cross the line, I always find out later because uh, <laughs> I don't realize I'm doing it in the moment. You know, I, there, there was... Um, I used to do Harry Carey, the Chicago Cubs announcer, yeah. on Saturday Night Live, and, uh, which was really fascinating because, you know, uh, it worked, obviously, for people who, who had grown up listening to to Chicago Cubs games and White Sox games, but it also worked for people who had no idea who he was. So I, I would have people come up to me and say, oh, I love that mad scientist character you do. I'm like, mad scientist? I don't do a mad scientist character. You're like, yeah, the guy with the, the glasses and the crazy white hair. Right. Like, ah, ah. I'm like, oh, Harry Carey. He's like, yeah, I don't know, but it's so funny. Anyway, but I was doing uh, the first year of the ESPYs. Right. Norm MacDonald was the host. Big Radio City Music Hall, and a bunch of the SNL writers are, are writing the show, and they ask if I'll come and do Harry Carey uh, for the uh, bring me out in the middle of the show, and I'm just gonna be confused and not know where I'm at. You know, I think I'm at the you know the Grammys, or and uh, and I'm and then I'm and then I I systematically go and make fun of athletes. Right. Well. They wrote a joke for me commenting, and John Elway sitting, and they made a comment about John Elway's, because John has John Elway has a bit of a toothy smile, yeah. And I and I made a comment as Harry, and apparently I got the feedback that he was very unhappy that it was, it was just not cool, <laughs> and um, and from that moment on, apparently in all the SB meetings for ten years after that, they were like, no more Will Ferrell, Harry Carey moments. We have to make sure we don't have that. So for everyone who thought it was funny, there were a lot of athletes who were offended and upset. But once again, in the heat of battle, I had no idea right. I was doing that. But that's still relatively benign. It's not right. Right. It's it's not a you know uh, something racially insensitive or you know this that and the other. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think it's one of those things where you always seem to use your body as a vessel for comedy, and you made yeah. that decision. Early on, yeah, like yeah. I, you're just going to do that, and yeah. and I guess you, once you go there, it's probably freeing. And and another ways. another thing too, we we I, we used to la- like we'd get letters on Saturday Night Live saying, "Hey, don't you know that was really mean what you guys did about this topic or that topic or the portrayal of this person?" But we were always taking what was given to us. So uh, I think part two, second answer to your question is, I think it's people's job in comedy to kind of push that boundary and, right. and walk right up to that line. So, well, like a guy like Andy Kaufman, I think. Of course, yeah, yeah. But there's, but there's, I mean, there is sort of a, you can, you can sort of go on that historical element. Like if you're an absurdist by nature, which sure. I, I kind of think that a lot of your humor is like Andy Kaufman. Bit, yeah, is, he, yeah. is he one of your sort of heroes? Loved him. Lo- yeah. yeah. You know, I remember watching Andy Kaufman uh, once again on the early Saturday Night Lives mm-hmm. and you know when he played the Mighty Mouse records, and uh, and half of my brain too young to really understand what was happening. Uh-huh. The other half of my brain going, "Oh, there's there's no point to this, really. He's just messing with the audience, <laughs> and still getting laughs." 
and I always, I always love that, uh, and and have, uh, you know, ultimately you are trying to get laughs, but there is an element to a lot of the things I've done that are that are messing with people <laughs> to an extent. Yeah, yeah, I do think that there's something funny in that sort of. It's not playing for the joke or for the punchline, but it's just oddly, yeah, yeah, messing with people. Because you said once, I think I read a quote where you said, "There's part of you that doesn't care if a sketch bombs. Like there's part of yeah. you that gets a twisted." What did you mean by that? <laughs> we would, uh, well, we. I think some of the hardest laughs we ever had on the show <laughs> was to was to go back and look at the previous week's show. But not at, the, not at the sketches that worked really well, but at the ones that were cut during dress rehearsal that got nary a peep. And, oh, really? Uh, oh. And where most people's instincts would be halfway through a sketch, like, this is not going well. Let's just, let's just speed it up and get through it. I had this, I don't know what it is, this mechanism within me that, 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 uh, that had this reaction to, okay, audience, you're not laughing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this four-minute sketch into seven minutes. You're going to have to sit through it twice as long. You, if you hate it that much, I'm going to force you to sit. Then I would just slow the sketch down, take my time. <laughs> and I don't know what – that's for no one's benefit, really. But, uh, um, yeah, I wasn't afraid of, of, of doing that. And uh, there, there was a sketch I wrote that worked really great at the table and got into the show and – I was a guy who looked exactly like Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah. And I cultivated my look, and I worked at an insurance company, and it was the day that he had come in to sign some papers, and no one bothered to get me, and I was in the, the bathroom. <laughs> and there, I, I walked into the coffee, the break room, and everyone's talking about, God, he was such a nice guy. He was so funny. I'm like, who are you guys talking about? Oh, Gabe Kaplan was here, and I look exactly like him. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? Why didn't anyone get me? Are you kidding me? Like, and anyway, it got, it got one of the smallest laughs I've ever heard. It, it, it got nothing, and then there was one little titter at the end. Uh, but we would watch those sketches and just howl at how the, the pain and the misery of going through that. And for some reason, that made us laugh harder than anything that worked. So you would almost like watch game film. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, apparently I'd heard like, some of the cat, you know, the cast that came after, like uh, Andy Samberg and Sudeikis and those guys, have told me they pulled that sketch. We heard about that sketch that went so horribly wrong, and we actually watched that. And then they started watching some of the sketches that bombed. So it became like a a cult thing to do within the show. Where yeah. do you think that came from? That that you, you know, that you, that you would want to drag something out like that <laughs> if it wasn't working. Like that takes confidence, I think. Yeah, I think it was just an internal test, you know, that y you obviously, comedy is such an interesting thing, and I'm sure you've, you've probably gathered this from all the people in comedy you've talked to, but it's such a weird uh, combination of you have to be supremely confident, but not overconfident. You never really know if anything's going to work, but yet you have to be willing to try it. And... Uh, so when things went bad, uh, it was a, it was a it was almost like a, a a ninja warrior thing to like okay you wrote this you thought of this you got to stick with it and and see it till its end don't bail on it 
uh, because this is how it's sometimes going to go. And, and for some reason, I, it was, that's the way I reacted. I'm, I'm, I'm banking on the fact that you're ultimately going to find it funny. But if you don't, I'm sorry. I'm just going to punish you with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That. You know, I watched, a, uh, I watched a whole reel of your bloopers. Okay. I mean, YouTube's amazing. You can just find things you didn't plan on <laughs> finding. A reel of my bloopers, yes. And it's this blooper reel, and I noticed in a lot of them, it seemed like your intention was to get your co-stars to laugh. Yeah. And I'm remembering an Eastbound and Down thing where Danny McBride's right, right, sitting right. there, and yeah, I think it's the plums. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and from the bloopers, to me, I'm looking at, you know, your whole goal there is to see if you can get these guys to, to break yeah. character. Yeah. Is that the goal sometimes? That, um, yeah, that became, that kind of, that started at, at, at Saturday Night Live once, you know, once you kind of break through the first two years, the fear of doing that show, uh, and then you, you, you reach a comfort level, and it becomes like you're, your home gym, so to speak, right. and uh, and then once you kind of get to that level, then it became a whole nother thing to to try to uh, to try to mess with the cast. If I if 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 I found the I, I wouldn't do it in an obnoxious way, and I never would do it to sabotage a sketch. But uh, but there there became moments where uh, you know there's. There's there, the characters that Rachel Dratch and I had come up with, where were these the lovers, these love, these professors who are just the the people you don't want to meet on a vacation, right. uh, who are <laughs> uh, overly expressive and they're about their relationship. And then, and it's a it's a scene with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore where we're in yeah. a, a hot tub, and um, and I don't know why I could tell Jimmy was barely hanging on from the beginning, but then for some reason I just had the urge that underneath the water just to keep touching his leg. Oh, you and, did? Yeah, and just keep squeezing. <laughs> and, 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 but it was kind of within character, too, you know, like, and, uh, but that, that just became something that if, if it was the right moment, you know, you can't do it too many times. Uh, it, 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 just, it just made us closer as a cast, and right. it just, it also, I think, Reminded, uh, reminded us and the audience that it's a live television show. Is it sort of at that point? It's yeah. just like, is it a badge of honor to get them to laugh? It's a, totally. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and it's also it's also why you're doing it in the first place. When you brought out Funny or Die, I think one of the first sketches was the landlord. Yes. Right? Yeah. And to me, I watched that and I got the sense that it was like. Oh, you got the idea. You shot it, bam, bam. Like it looked like it came together and was done very quickly, and like yeah. it had that same sort of energy. And it made me wonder if you, um, you know, if you sort of tend to try to replicate, or if you miss the live comedy environment of of having that sort of instant right. feedback from an audience. Once you kind of, for me at least, once I leave one thing and move on to the next, I I, I don't tend to look back. So uh, when I left SNL, I was. It was, I was happy to go, but um, for all the right reasons. And uh, but there are times where you wake up and you're like, "Oh, this would be this would be great to do in front of an audience," and it would only really work in front of an audience. Uh, 
Um, but that, but the landlord sketch is is a prime example of we just okay. We started this website. Now we need things to put on the website. Oh, so uh, you didn't have the things first? No, you just started the not at all. First. <laughs> it happened, and we're like, oh shoot, okay. Uh, and Adam and I started talking. We're like, God, oh, we should okay. We got to think of something to put on the site. And he he had said, oh, you know. His daughter was two at the time, and he's like, and she's super verbal. And uh, he's like, you know, I have this one idea where maybe Pearl is like this nasty landlord. And um, I said, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. When he come over, I think he literally came over. My son Magnus was having his three-year-old birthday party, and in the middle of the birthday party, we just ran over and shot it. So it was that quick? In an hour, yeah. And... Got the setup, got my coverage, got her coverage, gave her all the little lines to say, and then, and we were like, yeah, that'll work, right? Uh, <laughs> and it was just like, that's something we could throw. That's up something there. we can throw up there, and right. that'll that'll be at least, it, at least we're on the site, and and it's yeah, it's still so funny to see the impact that it had, and. Uh, yeah, well, How were you surprised when it started getting? Blo- uh, we were blown away, they, and the and the the technical guys on the site. It was closing down all the servers, and the site within that first week crashed multiple times because we didn't have enough space for you know all the traffic that was coming through, and we we're just laughing. We we're just going, really, this little landlord video, and and then upon second glance, I I, I kind of go, no. That is really. That actually is really funny. It, it came out came out pretty good. And, yeah, uh, I mean, and I guess we really are funny. professionals who know what we're doing. Yeah. The uh, the other great um, <laughs> landlord moment is being invited to the White House for uh, the White House Christmas party, and this is the one that they have. They have a bunch of Christmas parties throughout the right. season, but this is the one that's only for White House staff. And family, and they'd asked if I would come, and uh, they have entertainment. They they want to know if I, would I come and read the the uh, uh, the Grinch, <laughs> and I'm like sure. Uh, and but here's this room of like, you know, the senior staff, and uh, and so we're seated with the first lady, right? And so Viv, my wife Viv and I were, you know, sitting next to Michelle Obama, who's the most composed kind of natural person you're ever going to come around, you know. Uh, and she's like, I just have to tell you, that landlord video, oh, my gosh. My staff showed me that video. Where's my money, bitch? She just goes into the impersonation. <laughs> and I was like, you have made my day. You've made, like, my century, <laughs> my decade. I have to tell Adam about this. But that was, like, that was the moment where I was like, oh, this has had uh, a cultural impact Somehow. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Sunbasket. You know, it's no secret, I live in Los Angeles, the home to a lot of crazy diets. I mean, there's juice cleanses, intermittent fasting, carb cycling, paleo, and I think most people struggle to see long-lasting results from all of those diets. But what if instead you tried eating real food? That's where Sunbasket comes in. No matter what your lifestyle is, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy, 
with delicious recipes for all kinds of dietary preferences, including paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, vegetarian, and more. The difference is, you're just starting with real simple ingredients, you get the opportunity to cook for yourself without the headache of needing to have all the ingredients and buying too much of what you need at the store and having waste. Sunbasket takes all of the guesswork out and gives you an easy alternative for making home-cooked meals. They have everything pre-proportioned and ready to prep and cook. You can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Each week, Sunbasket offers at least 14 recipes to choose from, so you can try mouth-watering dishes such as salmon burgers with lemon dill mayo, gingered steak stir-fry with broccoli, and Mediterranean garlic shrimp with Spanish rice. Plus, Sunbasket has delicious options for an on-the-go breakfast, lunch, snacks, and more, so you can make sure your busy schedule doesn't get in the way of eating well. And Sunbasket delivers straight to your door. You can order from any recipes across their menus, skip a week whenever you need to, or double up on recipes for company. It's simple and easy with no gotchas. And right now for our listeners, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash off camera and enter the promo code off camera at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash off camera and enter the promo code off camera at checkout for $35 off your order. Now back to the show. When did you first uh, know yeah. that you could make people laugh? Like, do you remember going like, oh, this, this works and I enjoy doing this? Or? Um, you know, it was always something that I could kind of fall back on at, 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 on, on the playground at school. I mean, I, I do... I do remember at a really early age being funny with my friends and, uh, you know, because every kid has social anxiety. You know, when you're, when you're first starting school or meeting people or this and that. That was just me. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I, I, I somehow could make my friends laugh. And but did you need it or did you no, just? But I enjoy. but I enjoyed it, but I didn't. That's where I'm a bit of a weirdo. I, I uh, it's not like I, because most of the stories were I hated school, I was disinterested, I was the obnoxious class clown. I was none of those. Th- I, I, I loved school. I was a good student, uh, so I was very conscientious, uh, and I could make my teachers laugh and stuff. But then when they said, you know what, take a break, I'm like you got it, <laughs> I'll just chill out. Yeah, just tell me when you want me to ramp it up again. Yeah. Uh, if the lesson gets a little yeah. boring, just call but me in. I, <laughs> I'll warm them up for you. One of, the, one of the moments, though, for me w- was in high school when we were doing, I had um, uh, a friend who was our class president who was uh, trying to think of a campaign to sell senior class t-shirts to, to raise money so that we could go to Disneyland at the end of the year or right. whatever it was. And we were. He had me and my friend Bart write little sketches that we would do voices on the morning announcements and do character. And one night, I spent four hours writing a ske- writing a little sketch, revising it, rewriting it. But I thought I thought I'd spent twenty minutes. Oh really? And I looked at the watch. I'm like, okay, I better get back to my homework. Well, it was midnight, and I'd started at eight o'clock. And I, I thought, oh, don't, 
don't forget this feeling that this does not feel like work. This feels like I could do this for another four hours. And I just, I love the idea of, of changing a line and uh, figuring out how to word a joke differently. And, uh, and so I always held on to how, how, how good that felt and how that, you know, once again, that did not feel arduous to me in any sort of way. Um, and then it helps when you read it the next day and it works, and students are coming up and like, that was hilarious. And even teachers would, we, 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 this became this thing. We're like, when are you guys going to do another morning announcement? Those things are hilarious. Oh, really? and, uh, and we started performing at assemblies. So that was like kind of my first taste of, huh, this is pretty fun. But I wasn't, I wasn't confident enough or, or, I guess, adventurous enough to say, well, this is what I'm doing. You know, I still went to college uh, still was hanging on to the thought that I was going to, you know, not have a life in entertainment because I'd seen how, uh, you know, how tough it was with uh, me and my dad's a musician and watching him kind of go in and out of jobs. And uh, so uh, I thought, oh, I'll be a sportscaster. So I studied sports journalism and I was like, that's kind of a, I love sports and that's kind of entertainment. That's like a good, that's like a real job that's also entertainment related and but then I graduated college and then and then that's when it was still I still had this this thing of like I gotta try comedy and I don't know what that means but I gotta try it so I mean you graduated with a degree in yeah journalism right so was it hard for you to sort of you know let that go and 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 you know you know, decide you, to go some other way no, well here's what happened is it's not like you know, as as is the case with most things in life, it wasn't as if I graduated with this degree and a job was waiting for you. Exactly. Yeah. Television stations were calling going, we got to get this right guy. Oh, he's, <laughs> he's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and I saw, okay, this is going to take some time. I'm going to have to figure out how to get a, you know, my tape together. And so I started working at a cable news station uh, I, uh, you know, of course, I graduated from college. I moved right back home. Yeah. How was that? Was that sort of like... I was lucky. I mean, I had an understanding mother who uh-huh. was like, you, could, you know what? We'll just treat this as your graduate school. You know, as long as you have a, some sort of job to pay for your gas money, I'll let you live at home. But you got to kind of keep doing stuff, you know, keep pushing the rock forward. So I started working at a local news station, and I was... I was I was doing okay. I was going out and getting little stories, and I would anchor the news occasionally. Oh, really? Yeah, I was actually doing it. But the jobs were Yuma, Arizona, to start out, you know. Right. Uh, Flagstaff, or San Bernardino, you know, all these small mar- You know, you got to start at the small market. I thought, wow, everyone talks about how, how hard comedy is. This is just as hard on a different level. Uh, and yet I can't. I'm still thinking about the comedy thing. So then while I was doing that, I I said, "Hey, I'm going to try I'm going to try doing my first time at an open mic." And uh and actually I found a <laughs> uh I found a stand-up comedy workshop in a in a junior college extension course. And the thing that I noticed about it was it ends in a performance at the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach. Uh, legendary course. Golden sure. Bear. And uh, 
which is where my, it's so funny, my dad used to play music there with like the Righteous Brothers and people like that. So kind of coming full circle in a weird way. But, and I thought, oh, you know what? This will force me, because I, I had gone, even in high school, I'd gone to the Irvine Improv and places like that and sat in the back of the room at an open mic and thought, oh, okay, I'm going to, no, no, and just really? spend a whole night in the back of the room too scared to go up there and watching the other comics and going, oh, I think I'm just as funny as that guy. Oh, no, those, those last three, they were amazing. They were great. And I could never get up the nerve to actually take the plunge. So, uh, so I signed up for this course, and it ended in this performance, and, uh, and it went really well. And then, and then I was doing Groundlings classes. And right. So all of that meshed from that point. I, I knew I was jettisoning the, the journalism thing. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's such an amazing time for a kid, like when they yeah. find what they want to do. And, and did you feel like this is something that you're going to give yourself a time limit to do and to see if it works? Or well, that was, like, Were you serious yeah. about it? I, I was still very realistic in the sense that what if I don't, what if this doesn't work? Because there were plenty of nights that I'd gone out and done stand-up, uh, you know, because we're talking like early 90s where, yeah. you know, that was the huge explosion on cable uh, with right. half-hour comedy hour on MTV, uh, Comic Relief, A&E's Night at the Improv. Yeah. Because uh, everyone forgets outside of that, the only, t- only place you could see a comedian was on The Tonight Show. Right. Uh, so this was this massive proliferation of stand-up comedy. So growing up in Orange County, uh, every kind of local restaurant was starting to have a comedy night. And so I was going up at, you know, the cannery in Newport Beach and uh, all these local places and getting up there. And I would come back home and my mom would be like, how did it go? And I was like, thank God I have a college degree. Really? Yeah. So I had this thing in the back of my mind like, okay, just give it a, give it a shot. And, uh, um, and, and, and I actually sat down and had lunch with my father who's been in the music business for now 40 years. And I said, so dad, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to give this a shot. I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to get into comedy and, uh, any words of advice? And he he said, you know, because he'd seen me do stuff enough times. Like if it if it was if it was only about talent, I wouldn't worry about you because you really have some talent. But just know there's so much luck involved, and that you if you go down this road and it's starting to feel, you know, like you don't uh, you're not getting anywhere. And if you ever want to quit, quit it's okay to quit. Uh, just and and just do something else. Uh, and for some reason, it's like the anti pep talk. Pep talk. Yeah. For some reason, that took the pressure off. Of because you say it was out of your hands. It's like one it, in a million if exactly. you make it. And so I just approached it with like, this is probably not going to happen. So I might as well just have a blast. And uh, um, but because I gave myself that break internally. I think it, it, unbeknownst to me, opened all these doors uh, because people could could read that I was so free with what I was doing. So they could feel that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that is you've described exactly what it is because when you want something so bad, 
it's sometimes it gets in the way. That very desire gets hold, in the way. If you're holding the bat so tight that it's turning to sawdust in your hands, <laughs> it, it, the bat will disintegrate. Uh, right. You have to, you know. You did then allow yourself to get serious and not worry about, like, did you did you worry, like, oh, I'm going to pursue this comedy thing and then I'm going to, my, uh, you know, the, the fallback is going to be on hold and maybe I won't be able to go back to it? Or you no, just, you know, I think I honestly... I honestly was like, I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll figure something out. I'll, I can always be a, a substitute teacher or something. And how were you supporting <laughs> yourself during this time? I had some, I had some really good jobs. Uh, I was a valet. Oh yeah. Valet Parker. Yep. I was a bank teller. Really. I, I somehow. That's stressful. Survived all these jobs where. You know, I avoided waiting tables because I knew I, I'm not a good multitasker. I knew I, would, I wouldn't survive in that world. So I somehow survived this myriad of office jobs to, to and thank God Saturday Night Live came to see me at the Groundlings. And, God, it's like yeah. you want videotape of some <laughs> of those moments to look totally. back. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember your stand-up routine um, pre-Groundlings even when you were doing open mics? Do you remember uh, any, I any do, standout jokes? I remember, um, well, my whole opening was a Star Trek-based opening uh, where I would say, um, hello, hello, how's everyone doing tonight? My name's Will Ferrell. Uh, um, great to be here. And... Uh, uh, some of you probably don't know this. Some of you might might know this, but some of you probably don't know this, that I was the original vocalist to the theme to Star Trek. And for anyone who used to watch the Star Trek shows, it has that famous that song where it's like this woman's voice that's like, Aah! and I would sing the entire song. Uh, and that would kind of get a laugh. A weird smattering of applause. So how long was that? It was it was it was literally this long. <laughs> so I would I would that's what I would do. <laughs> Depending on how drunk the crowd was, it was either I was either off to a great start yeah. or either miserable. <laughs> and I think I think um, I think my the thing I would say after is like thank you, thank you very much. Um, uh, the reason why I can sing that is because I have I don't have any testicles. <laughs> I'm like a Ken doll. I'm smooth. I'm kind of smooth down there. It's like a weird bump type of thing. So that was that was the start of my. But see, right there, I see I see beginnings of you because it's not just the testicles. That would be the joke, right? But then to go into the smoothness, yes. So okay, yeah. so I was reading about and and you've told this story before, so I don't want you to you know have to belabor it, but right. but I was kind of fascinated with you described in one interview a moment um, that occurred right before you had to go on stage and give an audition and. You're you're on the floor. You're on the eighth floor, in the in oh, oh for for, for Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And and you said that you're standing uh, 
right behind the stage door, and you've got all these portraits of the yeah. great Saturday Night Live titans, you know, yes. Belushi and Aykroyd, and right. you see you're trying not to vomit. Yeah. And I just wondered what that, you know, that, like, of all the things you're talking about, that's the pinnacle of anxiety, totally. right? Totally. Yeah. That was the, that was, yeah, that's one of those moments where you, you're, I mean, I don't know if you've ever literally been weak in the knees, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced the feeling of being weak in the knees, but I felt weak in the knee, and and I, I thought, oh, I thought that was just a, a, a weird phrase. I didn't think it actually physically Someone made happened. that up. Yeah, but I literally felt like my knees were going to buckle. You're that nervous, really. And it's yeah, it's it's as if you're a, a paratrooper, you know, about to jump out the plane. Uh, and you're trying to remember what you're going to do. You're just pacing. You're hearing the, the, the person on stage doing their audition, so you're trying to block that out. And then, uh, then the doors just open, and they're like, well, yeah, come on. And it's like, okay, I, I just have to do this now. Uh, and it was so nerve-wracking and such a moment of having your back up against the wall that I almost, I, I passed the threshold and then I just got really relaxed. Well. Because, I, because I'm like, there's nothing to lose. I mean, I'm, here I am. So might as well just. But I'm sure some yeah. people would buckle in that. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm sure some people did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And just. It's funny to talk about, you know, to talk to Forte or to talk to, to Jason Sudeikis or, or any of us who've been through that experience, everyone has had a different, because uh, Lauren doesn't do it in a set way. He mixed it up from year to year. And the year I happened to do it, it was on stage there at 8H, Studio 8H, where they do the show. Uh, so we had, we had one, one audition, five to eight minutes long. Uh-huh. Uh, and they give you this very, these cryptic parameters, you know, uh, a, a character of your choice, a, a celebrity impersonation if you have one, and a political impersonation if you have one. And if you don't have any of it, just funny. Just make it funny. So you're like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I made it through. There was a group of us from the Groundlings who'd been called out to L.A. to do it, and the word on the street was, was that the Groundlings had all done really well uh, and that there probably was, probably was going to be a callback. And so I got the call, and like, you're, you're coming back, and this time it's going to be over two days. Lauren wants to meet you one day, and then you have the audition the next day. So that's when I walked into Lauren's office, and he's like, so wh- what are you going to do? And I, I kind of went through, because the rule in TV, and, yeah. and this is the only time, it's not like I'd been doing a ton of TV auditions up until that point, but the rule when you're testing for network television is to do exactly what you did the fir- throughout the process. Just kind of keep it consistent, because that's what... That's, that's, what got you that's what got you there. Right. So in TV, when you're testing for something, the, the, the uh, conventional wisdom is to kind of consistently do the same thing uh, with your character or whatever. So that was my game plan. I was going to kind of do the same audition that I had done the first time. I, I was going to add something different. I think I was going to try to do Bill Clinton as an impersonation because I knew they're going to need someone to play the president. and. Little did I know, Daryl Hammond is auditioning at the same time, like one of the greatest yeah. <laughs> impersonators of all time. Uh, but so I sit down with Lauren, and I go through, and he's like, 
no, I wouldn't do that. I would change that too. And, um, and he goes through the list. And I said, okay, so, okay, so just so I'm clear, should I just should I just throw everything out? And he's like, well, I just want. And and in hindsight, what he was doing was actually really smart. He was forcing me to just come up with new stuff, new shades, new moves, so to speak, so that everyone back at the network could see that I could do other things. So, but he kind of just didn't say that. He kind of had a roundabout way of... Um, right. But he, uh, this get-off-the-shed character, uh, yelling at these kids to get off the shed, he's like, no, keep that, keep that. So, so then I'm, I'm up till 2 in the morning redoing a brand-new audition in my head and uh, I mean that's terrifying. Yeah, like like you probably prepared for weeks, and then you. I sat exactly, and I sat with the with the people. You know, Marcy Klein, who was in the talent office. She's like, "So how did it go?" And I'm like, "Well, he kind of told me to change everything." <laughs> and she's like, "Okay, what can I do to help?" She was really helpful, and she she moved my my. She was like, "Would you you want me to move you later in the day?" And I'm like. That would be great, and so it gave me some more time to just because you're just alone in a hotel room, talking to yourself, oh God. doing character. Yeah, like well, maybe I'll do this guy, okay. But I, it's not like I was sitting there writing it. So there I was that next day, just by the seat of my pants, doing three or four different things that I hadn't planned on doing, and um, and I walked out of the studio going. I blew it. It's done. I didn't. Really? Yeah. As good as I felt about the first time, the, the second time I was like, oh, no. That's it. Because you had no feedback either. You hadn't no. tried it out. Or, yeah. Because you did. I, I watched it. I, someone has an actual tape of the audition. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was you playing with cat toys. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. But I'm that thinking. That was probably like, the, that was the biggest sinking moment because, you know, at that the way the auditions were done, it was just an empty studio. Right. And there was no one in the room to laugh, but it was purposely done that way to create the pressure of, of live television. So here I am lying around on, with cat toys, uh, playing with cat toys on the stage where the host for Saturday Night Live delivers the monologue every week. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is the end. This is... Now, the night before, were you running out to Walgreens and buying cat toys? Like, I think I, I must have. Because, yeah, you had to kind of bring your own props. So, yeah, I was... Uh, and then I met I, my one friend who lived in New York at the time. I said, why don't, why don't we meet for, for a beer? Because uh, I'm either going to feel like... I'm gonna, either going to feel really good and let's have a beer, or I'm going to feel horrible and let's have a beer. Uh, Pretty much proving that beer goes with anything. <laughs> or we're, we're going to be doing shots. Because <laughs> I'm so... And we stayed out till 3 in the morning, and he's like, well... I'm like, I don't know. And, and, and then I started going through the, the characters I did. He's like, well, that sounds pretty funny, and this sounds pretty funny. I'm like, well, maybe I did. Maybe I did better than I thought, you know. But you just have no idea. Yeah, gosh. Obviously. I think the year before you got on, it hadn't been a great year for Saturday Night Live, right? And... And there were a lot of new people. It was a ton of new people. Yeah, I think it was seven or eight brand new cast members and an entire new writing staff. And, um, uh, which, oddly enough, once again, was a gift. Uh, How's that? Because it was just, 
it was one for all and all for one. There was so it took individual pressure off. and took individual pressure off because right. the audience at home didn't know us. Uh, the writers, we all didn't know each other, but we kind of had to, to band together. And, you know, in the, like a Little Rascals movie, put on a show. <laughs> right. And the show was either going to be canceled with us or on to the next thing. And, um, and it was great. It was, it was, it was great. We, everyone, and I truly say everyone, uh, pulled for each other. And because that, that was not necessarily the reputation of Saturday Night Live up to that point. There was factions of all that stuff, and we just didn't have that. And it was just um, also too. It's it was the first job for so many of us. So you're and you're living in New York, and you're on this show that you dreamed about, and here we are, and it's our job to to try to save it. So uh, instead of that feeling intimidated, intimidating, it it, it just was so exciting, and and uh, uh, and we just and Lauren kind of had to just trust us with our. Whatever our tastes were. Wow. Yeah. And did you feel at all being from Southern California like an outsider? The only person I really knew who was hired was Sherry O'Terry. Okay. From the Groundlings. Chris Catan was hired later that year, but and I so I knew Sherry and I knew each other. Um, and that's really it. But otherwise, it was a big click from Second City. There uh. was a click from, you know. The Lampoon, there was all these little clicks, and everyone's doing their bits, and I was like, I, I didn't know what to do with myself, and um, and it really wasn't. Till, everyone thought I was like a quiet. Uh, no one could kind of figure out w- what I did or what I was going to do um, until we had that first read through, and and that's where you know I kind of surprised a bunch of people. Oh, really? I got to try some of the things I'd written and um, and people had cast me in things and I had a great first read through to the point where people were like oh where did he come from because he, he hadn't said a word to any of us I surprised Lauren to the point where apparently I heard in the meeting where they picked the sketches that he just kept saying over and over how, how good was well like, like he was even surprised like uh, but there's something about performing Whereas I'm able to always throw away any sort of insecurity uh, that I might have in any sort of social setting. So performing was so much easier than trying to go into everyone's offices and prove that you're funny. Oh, really? Yeah. So so once you had... Once you had it on the stage or whatever, you then I was good just to go. let it go. Just let it go because you did write a little bit, right? I mean, you did yeah. create stuff, whereas yeah. some some cast members didn't at all. Right, right, right. I mean, that was the that was the whole benefit of having gone through the Groundlings program, where it forced you to to write sketches constantly, so you got to use that muscle. So we, I could kind of navigate my way around right. writing and writing for myself. So I wasn't at the mercy of. Because sometimes that's where that's where it can be a tough place when you're you have an idea and you're 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 chasing writers down like would you work on this with me and some writers are up for that others are like no I want to do my my special premise and it, that can be tough right so, right yeah well that brings up a question because I started thinking about you know you you sort of wrote the line you did impersonations and, and yeah. you also created original characters and and I started thinking about the differences of, of I did those impersonations two of a lot of unnecessary 
people. Right. No, like Harry <laughs> Carey is a great example. It's right. not like you're picking someone no. that's a hot button political exactly. person. Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. but are they similar in a way, or are they total? Like when you decide, like say Janet Reno. Right. That's the, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. What do you look for in that person to to create? Is it physical? Is it like? Is it different it can, with each person? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's different. It's usually, it's usually a physical thing. If you can latch onto that and and um, build an impersonation around that, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not technically gifted the way we mentioned Daryl Hammond, who, I would talk to him about the way he would study people, and he could tell that a certain person must have had dental work at some point because the way they're. Their, their tongue clicks to the roof of their mouth on certain consonants. And you're like, how, how, did, how are you figuring that out? And he's like, oh, no, you can just hear if you listen. I was like, oh, I'm not. Because <laughs> I'm just trying to get the essence. Right. And then, and, and Janet Reno is a case of like, gosh, everyone's trying to land the spotlight political impersonation. Wouldn't it be funny to go against the grain and just do an impersonation of someone? Like, there's no reason. Janet Reno wasn't in the news at all. Right. Uh, she just had a peculiar look about her, and I was like, wouldn't that be funny? Just have Janet Reno's dance party, and she just hosts like a kid's show. And, and it seems like and the voice, you grabbed onto the voice. The voice was the too. way you think she's going to sound. Right. <laughs> but she doesn't sound like that at all. Well, that's the thing and, about your impersonations. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, sometimes it yeah. didn't matter. No, yeah. Like, I think Alex I would, Trebek was that way, too. I yeah. don't think he tried to be like No, I, I, I tried to do his mannerisms and everything, yeah. but I didn't try. I didn't sit up at night listening to tapes constantly. No, and, and, and I think yeah. that kind of is part of the appeal for me, yeah. too, that, like, okay, I know he's Alex Trebek. Yeah. Now I can enjoy, like, there's more yeah. freedom to your impersonations. Uh, and, and I kind of stole a page out of Dan Aykroyd's playbook and, and Chevy Chase a little bit, too, because... We think about Chevy Chase playing Gerald Ford. Yeah. He, he didn't bother didn't to look like hard. him. He didn't try to sound like him. And yet it was so funny. Yeah. Bush was the one guy I really studied only because there was such a spotlight. Right. He's the president. On that, on that campaign. And in fact, I didn't even think he was going to. I had started. I, someone had written a couple uh, weekend update monologues. Right. And I had done Governor Bush a couple times on the news. But I didn't think he was going to make it through the primaries. And then I saw that he, over the summer, he's picking up steam. I'm like, oh, I better get this guy down. And That's so, a weird thing for a liberal to, yeah. to uh, hope that the guy gets in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, uh-oh, this guy's, this guy's maybe going to make it to the finish line here. I better, I better start studying him. And, and he, so he was, he was one of the few times where I really started listening to him and right. trying to figure that out. One of the things I think that's, you know, very true and very interesting about you is you're just this beloved guy. <laughs> and you just show up in a movie and people are just ready to like it. You know, right, and, and, right, right. And, and you have this, you do have that. And, and I think that it's, it's the kind of thing where I wonder with your success and with how much you've allowed yourself to play with what you do and showing up in guest spots and commercials and everything. How do you find ways to challenge yourself? It's fun. It's really fun and interesting to me to keep kind of, you know, zigging when people think I'm going to zag. You know, right. it, 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 uh, it's just, 
I love every now and then doing those things. Uh, I guess it's I guess it comes from that same uh, instinct of forcing the audience to sit through a bad sketch longer than right. they should have right. to. But yeah, I, I I just think it's it's just more dynamic. It 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 adds to uh, the the whole body of work in a way uh, to to do these these random things and 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 it's 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 fun for me i mean we one of the ideas i had for five years maybe even longer was to do put myself in a spanish language film right and case case in point uh casa de mi padre Padre, which there's no reason you know professionally speaking for me to go out on that limb i think that stands out as the weirdest moment in your career yeah and did you love yeah. doing it? It was. Or, I mean, I what loved, did that experience? I mean, kind of. It was. I loved doing it, and yeah, when it was all said and done, I loved doing it. The process was was horrible. I <laughs> I was like, how did I get myself into that? <sighs> Matt Piedmont, our director, was like, he called it a twenty-two day fever dream. It's <laughs> like the fever dream's almost over, okay? Because it was literally. Um, you know, I, I really only have high school and a little bit of college Spanish. Right. So I'm in the car at 5 a.m. driving to set with a translator going over that day's scene endlessly, going, going over the scene throughout the shooting day, uh, getting in the car, driving home, and starting on the next day's work. And uh, because the point of the movie wasn't that I spoke Spanish poorly, it would be that that, wait, is that Will Ferrell? And actually, his Spanish is decent. You know? Right. Um, and that's kind of the standard I set for myself, even though I know, God, this is going to be hard. This is going to be... But we were ready to go. We had cue cards ready in case I needed them, which I'm happy to say I really didn't go to the cue cards that many times. Uh, but but if I mispronounced a word, we would do it over again. We'd do it over again until I got... You know, we got enough takes to where the pronunciation was was roughly in the ballpark. Uh, but who does but, that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't that know. was sort of insane yeah. in some ways. It was insane. And, and then, and the marketplace uh, bared out. So as the movie, <laughs> it no bore one, out the, it bore out the yeah. fact that no one saw the movie. And, <laughs> and it was really hard to sell. You made a movie that had no demographic uh, and, audience. And, and yeah. we thought... Because you know, you, you hear how uh, uh, Latinos are the are one of the biggest movie-going segments of the population, and there's not enough uh, uh, there, there, there aren't enough Hispanic-focused uh, you know commercial right. movies and things like that. We thought this is a great idea. Put put kind of someone from uh, you know American comedy in the center of one of these. We'll do our take on a telenovela meets a bad you know. Mexican Western and uh, but no sure no, enough yeah no. it, we forgot that oh it's it's basically a subtitled movie and that's not a big it's still right. an art house movie but I loved a, at the end of the day I loved that was the most rewarding thing one of the one of the more rewarding things I'd done no kidding yeah well you know I was uh, one of the other films I watched um, that I hadn't seen since it came out in theaters when I was preparing for this was yeah. uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Oh, yeah. And I loved yeah. your performance in that Thank film. You. And what, you know, 
for people who don't know, it's it's um, it's a film about a guy who finds out he is a character in a fictional novel, Correct. and Harold is his name, yeah. and he, he's an IRS agent, and yeah. you play him with like this strict moral code, and, yeah, yeah, and sort of with this simplicity, but that yeah. he, there's a nobility to it, right? Yeah, totally. That whole job felt like I held my breath the whole time. How so? In that I was so afraid to mess it up. You know, oh, really? it, it was one of the it was it was one of the more beautiful scripts I've ever read, and it was, you know, because there are moments in Hollywood where there's that script that's being passed around, and right. they're they're considering this. They're considering a hand like eight people, and uh-huh. you read that script, and you're like, oh yeah, of course. Well, this would be this would be amazing, but they're going to go with Russell Crowe, or they're going to go with the, the bigger, you know, the bigger name with more international exposure, you know, more the actor and, and that sort of thing. So I read it going, well, of course, this is amazing, but they're not going to, they're not going to choose me. And, uh, and they're like, no, Mark Forster, he's like, he's debating whether he wants an actor who's can kind of play off the, the comedic parts or if he wants a comedian who can hold his own with the acting. Uh, so I sat down with him, and we had a great meeting, and this and that, and so I, and and I end up getting getting the part. But but I go from in that movie, I go from acting with Dustin Hoffman yeah. to Emma Thompson to Maggie Gyllenhaal, just kind of, you know, I felt like I was on the Harlem Globetrotters, <laughs> and I was just like. <laughs> Um, as soon as I got the ball passed to me, I was like, y- you take it now. <laughs> okay, I got it again. Uh, no, I'm not going to shoot. No way. Uh, and I just was, it was just an amazing, every day of shooting was incredible. And Mark Forrester's made some beautiful movies and is really, he's one of those directors that doesn't sit by the monitor. He just sits right, he'll sit Indian style right by the camera or underneath the camera and just watch the scene. And he'll yell back to the DP, like, I loved it if it was good for you. Like, I, he, ne- he never looked at anything. Wow. And there's a scene in the movie where I elicit the help of Dustin Hoffman, who's a, a, a literature professor. Right. Because I'm trying to figure out what's happening. I'm hearing these voices, and I can't figure out what's going on. And he's kind of my uh, 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 detective I've hired, in a sense, to piece this all together. And he... We track down this writer, Emma right. Thompson. He he reads her story, and I go to meet with him. I'm like, well, so what's the ver? And and that's the scene where he tells me I have to die. I, I just have to. Which it's bizarre to talk about in this context, but uh, it's the first time I really had to do an emotional scene with another actor. And here here I am with Dustin Hoffman, and that was like, uh, you know, to this day, one of the greatest days as an actor that I, I will ever have. I bet. Yeah. Um, now, did, were you honest with him and said you're, you feel, you know, like, did you share with him that you're feeling like, oh, my God, I'm acting with you? Like, how do you, how do you manage that? I don't that? know if I ever actually said those words, but because he was so giving, uh, he was literally, you know, in his off-camera he was cry- like he wasn't even on camera yet, and he was emoting and helping me to try to get to this place, and all those things you hear about uh, uh, with great actors. And he just made it so comfortable. If anything, I used the fear of not being able to execute it 
to generate the emotion. I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to cry that I started crying. And that's what kind of got me to that place because I didn't want to let anyone down. Wow. Uh, and, and so that was... Uh, um, and we had a... <laughs> we had kind of a great moment because, you know, it's weird to do those emotional scenes because you don't know... You don't want to go out of the gate too hard because you you're going to be crying all day. You're like, how how much more can I access this? Right. And yet, you want every moment to be real, so you kind of just, whereas normally on the move, all the other comedies I work on, in between setups, you're laughing, you're joking, you're like, you're, you're keeping it loose. And I just like sat in a chair. I didn't know what to do with myself. So just kind of sitting and, and uh, no one wants to, it's like, it's like I could tell. It's like the no-hitter. Exactly. <laughs> this was the moment in the movie that the producers, the director, everyone who'd cast me didn't know if, truly if I could do. And while it was happening, no one wanted to say anything. Uh, and it was like a no-hitter. No one was talking to me because I think they were just like, oh, my gosh, it's, this is going to be a great scene. And, uh, like, Will's not effing it up. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so Dustin and I have a moment, and uh, which is it's such it's so this is really funny he was like uh, <laughs> he's like like he just patted me on the shoulder like like you're doing great and uh i'm like i said gosh I, I wish god i wish my dad was here today he would love this to see the to watch this to see the scene and everything like that and he's like he grabs me he's like when did he pass? And I'm like, oh no, he lives in Irvine. <laughs> no, I just wish, <laughs> he was just out here two weeks ago. No, I just wish he was here right now. He's like, oh, okay. And then he walked away. But I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, no, don't start laughing now. Don't start laughing. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, just didn't know what to expect. Didn't, just hoped I would be in the zone for this thing. Am I, right. am I playing it the right way? Am I going to hate myself on camera? You know, all those things that, uh, that you go through when you when you finally watch the finished thing, but right. Well, you know, I also yeah. read that you on Elf. Yeah. When you were, you said you had a moment when you had the pointy shoes and the tights on, yeah. where you were like, "Oh my God, my career is over." Right. And that made me wonder, with comedy especially, not so much drama, but with comedy especially, um, if that was if that was you just not being experienced enough yet to know what you had on your hands, or if. You never know until you get a film in front of an audience, right? Like that. Like, what have you found? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that uh, the instant with Elf, it, it was a combination of things. It's you know the the headline to all of to all of this is that we truly don't know. It's all an educated guess, uh, um, and you find it with every movie. The 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 scene that the crew was falling out on the floor about obvious it. I would say more times than not is a scene that doesn't play for the audience, no at kidding. least in my experience. The, the smaller weird things that you were just doing and then no one noticed, those are the big laughs a lot of times. Uh, uh, so you just, you just never know. You, know uh, you, you truly never know. I'll say that. Uh, as it regards to Elf, you know, prior to that point, I was known for... It was kind of known for a certain style of comedy coming off of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. uh, I just filmed Old School, which hadn't come out yet. Um, but I think 
I was known for edgier, provocative kind of For a little raunchier stuff. Yeah, or uh, someone who's not afraid to just go for it and, and not worry about the consequences. So that's why here I am in this Christmas movie. I'm like, ah, am I just going to get killed on this? You know, uh, are people going <laughs> to just go, wait, what is this premise? What's going on here? And uh, But it, you know, it all obviously came together uh, in a way that I never would have imagined. Yeah, it is. It's like truly become a Christmas classic. And it that movie's helped by the fact that it's a Christmas movie. So you're you're going in, you know, the Christmas tale for the audience. You're already halfway there. So the idea that a human's raised uh, at the at the North Pole and grows up without knowing, and then is walking around New York in an elf suit and and never has a moment of of like of of like oh I don't belong or what am I wearing uh, because we committed to that and his belief that then that allowed the audience to go oh no that's a really funny imaginative premise that works see that's that's interesting I think that the audience doesn't consider or just anybody yeah. you don't consider all the sort of things that go into just buying the premise up front yeah you know, right. and that's probably a hard thing to see when you're on set and making yeah. it because you don't yeah. have all the context of it. Yeah, all those forces put together, I guess, worked in the end. But I, I had no idea. You know, the first time we we tested the movie, it, we we did two screenings. We did one that was more of a family focused audience, and it worked great with them. And then uh, my manager Jimmy called me. He's like, "Hey, so we just had the first one. And it went really well, but." I'm looking at the crowd lineup for the second screening, and it's it's like a bunch of frat guys from USC, and we might get eviscerated in this. And uh, but it played for that audience too. So then we thought, then then it was that's when we knew, oh well, this could maybe this will work as one of those rare movies that works for everyone. And you throw your your cynicism aside, and it it's it's heartwarming, but it's also funnier than you think it's going to be, and and. Uh, so yeah, and that's what happened. And that's God, what happened. That's amazing. Yeah, that collaborative thing, you know, when you were when you're in the middle of it, it really, it really is amazing when it works, you know. And, yeah. and I, it, you've mentioned Adam McKay a couple times, and right. I've always kind of dreamed of that perfect collaboration thing. And I'm, right. I'm a solo guy. Like yeah. I'm a photographer. I'm a director. Right. I don't get to have that collaboration yeah. that often. And and I just wonder if he is like. You know, not only obviously, I'm sure your relationship has grown and changed, and you have your working methods. But right. as you become, you know, more and more experienced and famous and successful, does he remain sort of your bullshit detector in terms of you know an audience where you feel like you can always throw something by him and and know you're going to get an honest answer? I mean, what is his value to you as a collaborator? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It's everything you just said. You know, it's it's uh, it's just that unique thing where, you know, Adam and I were literally hired on Saturday Night Live on the same day. Oh, really? And uh, um, in fact, he was coming out of the office, Lauren's off office, as I was waiting in his lobby to go in next. And we didn't know each other obviously at that time, um, but when we met at the show. Uh, and started working together. It was just, it's, 
it's hard to explain because uh, I think it's, it rarely happens. And it's just, it's just a shared language. It's a shared... We just had a shorthand with each other where... Right off the bat? Right off the bat, okay. yeah. Where um, he, you know, technically speaking, we both liked to write sketches quickly and not overthink it and just have fun and, and, and just kind of uh, um, not turn it into uh, such a chore. And, and, um, and that kind of just turned into writing features and um, and it's you know it happens today we'll both be on a conference call where we're maybe we're just even acting as producers on something and uh, someone will bring up a point and I'll start to articulate something and Adam goes I know exactly what Will's about to say I think what we need to do is A, B, C, and D and I'm like that's exactly what I was going to say and, and we're just we just share the same Comedy brain is the best way I can Amazing. describe it, and and he'll come and I'll have a thing, and he'll add three other levels to it that I didn't even think of, which will then have me go to another place. Then he'll go, oh, that's hilarious. Then he'll add another thing, and so we we end up just building this treehouse uh, with everything we do, where we don't know the shape of we don't we never have a blueprint. You know, we'll have a a rough outline, but we don't know what the treehouse is going to look like. And then when we step back, we're like, "Boy, that looks pretty good." Or it's that's a crazy looking treehouse, but it's going to be fun to climb in. It may not, it may, it may break apart in two seconds, but we're going to have a great time playing in that for a while, you know. So is is a lot of it vocal? Like, uh, will you guys throw things back and forth, or is it writing? Or it's you- it's 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 both. You know, if it's on the set, it, it'll. Um, Adam kind of developed this thing now on, on when we did Anchorman 2 where he'd just he'd sit with a wireless mic behind the monitor and put a speaker in the on the set and just as the cameras roll he just is come writing in his head and just coming up with with extra lines while we just stay in the flow of the scene and uh, and then that will that will trigger ideas that I have and it's kind of it, it, it's been a huge gift uh, for me, for me especially. I mean, for for both of us, I think we both view it as like kind of one of the more amazing things that have happened to each other in our lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We also shared, uh, you know, when we sat down to write Anchorman, we we wrote this movie that, kind of in our heads, at least broke all the rules of all these other movies we've been watching. And we, we kept saying, well, why? You know, but I'd love to see a movie do this. And I'd love, I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to go back to kind of the ensemble comedy. Because prior to that, you know, a lot of uh, the movies you'd see, Jim, a Jim Carrey movie, had the, had the central funny character that would drive the story. Right. And everyone reacts off of it. And we're the, we're the kids who grew up on Animal House and, and Stripes and... All these ensemble pieces that Caddyshack, like, Caddyshack, and uh, and we're, we just we're, we just had this nostalgic thing. It wouldn't be fun to return back to you know. I love being the funny character, but I also love seeing everyone else get laughs, and it also takes the pressure off the main character. It's 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 great to have an exit and and enter the film later um, to cut to other funny 
parts of the movie, other funny characters, other funny storylines. Uh, and we really, you know, that movie kind of uh, set the tone for how we were going to work. And, and we, always had, we always had this thing with all the projects we've worked on is like, what, if I'm sitting in a theater and I paid my 13 bucks or 15 or what, what is it now, 19, yeah. 1975? I think it's $27. $27. And I saw these eight things in a, in a movie. I would walk out going, that was worth my money. Yeah. So we're always trying to on the on the like, on the projects we work on, just think of those things that oh, I have never seen that before, and so that that's kind of that's been the uh, kind of the backbone of our creative relationship. Well, on that note too, I think that one of the most true things I've heard about your style of comedy is in a story you related where. You were in some studio executive meeting, and, and yeah. uh, some executive said, the main thing about a, a comedic lead is that he has to be likable. Right. And you just said right there, it's absolutely wrong. <laughs> and you've gone on really to prove that. I mean, you really, when you think about yeah. Ron Burgundy, he's essentially yeah. an unlikable dude right, right, right. that somehow audiences love. So, I mean, is that right. that's sort of like... Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about breaking rules, like there really maybe aren't any rules as long as the guy no, has there a goal, isn't. yeah, something to do. There then really isn't. Yeah. He can be anything, and I think that's that's what's amazing. And maybe it maybe it you know speaks to the fact that you're so likable that you can you can do these characters. And yeah, I mean, I think it helps. It, it's it's helped me that I'm I'm this guy who seems like could be your neighbor or your 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 work colleague. And or your valet, or your valet, or your bank teller, <laughs> <laughs> or your switch ba- switchboard operator at an art auction house, um, and yet the most outlandish things come out of my mouth, and it's kind of this contrast that's obviously worked for me. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I, it's true. We we would we would bristle against the fact that. Uh, because, yeah, you meet a lot of comedy writers, and it'll be like, well, I don't know, in the second act, this needs to happen. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. No one's walked out of a comedy going, did you see that, that, uh, that, that plot shift in the second act? Wasn't that nice? No, you're, <laughs> you're walking out going, oh, my God, when he played jazz flute or, uh, you know, when Ricky Bobby was mauled by a cougar for no reason. For no There's reason no at all. Re- yeah. That's right. Uh, th- th- you, you're remembering the jokes. You're remembering the funny, the moments that you you uh, you can't believe you just saw in a comedy. Uh, so so we that's I think that's been our we've we've tried to shatter all those things. Well, I think know. that if I've taken away anything from this, it's that you know maybe not working so hard is the way to go. It doesn't have to be a chore. If you just want to get a cougar well, and have a mall somebody, yeah. maybe that's all you I have mean, to it's do. Still, it's still agonizing, though. <laughs> Believe me, there are times, yeah. I, I, that, we left that part out of, of in course. the interview that, that of course there are moments where we're at the key, where you know, you're writing something and you're just like, I don't know how to make this work. Right. Yeah. I think when you, when you say Stripes and you say Caddyshack yeah. and you say Animal House, it puts it in perspective of you know, if you forget how to have fun with it, then that's that's the first step towards disaster, right? And it yeah. seems like, and everyone's always shocked, like, how how's it going to be? How's how's the movie going to be? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. 
You don't? I literally don't know. It could, and I love telling people it could be great or it could be horrible. We just don't know. <laughs> and then I pat them on the back and then I walk away. And there's <laughs> now, you know, but you have to let that go and just let the process and trust the fact that, you know, your educated guess, because comedy, that's all it is, is an educated guess. Your, your educated guess is, is, is probably closer than someone else's, and it's, it's probably going to land on its feet. Right. Right. Well, I mean, comedy's the weirdest thing anyway. Yeah. I mean, just if you start thinking about it no. too hard, then and nothing works. Nothing works, and, and then it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day, and, and I've enjoyed not only this conversation, but just getting to know you over Thank the years. Thank you, and, Sam. And, yeah, and, you too. No, yeah. it's great. And, and I, I, I hope, you know, and we'll I, do a part two at some point. Um, and congrats on the show. It's so, you know, it's just really refreshing to see a conversation. Oh, thank you. In this, I appreciate in this uh, era of sound bites. Exactly, yeah, right? This age yeah. of sound bites. So that's why this is all. I hope the show goes on for 50 years. One show or, or the show in this, general? No, this show right here. This show right here. Yeah, 50 goes years. in the time. Well, we can keep going. The time capsule. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thanks, Sam. This. I appreciate fun. it. And please, anytime you feel like. Espousing yeah. on any subject? Just espouse here. Just knock on the door. Yeah. Okay. We're always here. <laughs> the cameras are always going. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Hey, folks, that's the show. Hope you enjoyed that. I love going back and listening to these older episodes. It's amazing not how much I remember, but how much I forget. And I listen again and I realize, wow, an hour really is a long time. It never feels like a long time when I'm in the room, but it's nice to go back and see how deep we were able to go into Will's career and his thought process and all of that. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I really appreciate you tuning in. I also really appreciate all of the people that work on this show, and I'm going to tell you who they are right now. There's Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson, and occasionally Amy Jones and Matt Davidson. All of these people have poured their hearts into this show, and we couldn't do it without them. So thank you to everyone that not only listens to the show, but that works on the show. And I will see you next time off camera.